Well, good morning once again. Uh, it's great to see everyone. My name is David. I'm one of the pastors here on staff. Uh, people do call me a DC here, and it's such a blessing uh, to be able to worship with you all today. I just want to thank our brother Yanu for sharing again. Uh, it was really an amazing opportunity to see what God was doing in the region of Yanji, which is right next to the North Korean border. Um, and um, we're going to have another vision trip possibly next year, and I I want you guys to start praying about um, joining that team and seeing what God is doing. There's nothing like uh, experiencing another culture, but experiencing God moving in a different culture and space. And so uh, keep that in mind for next year. Um, this trip was um, very special for me. Um, I did not know that actually I would reconnect with actually my 2007 uh, mission team to North Korea. Uh, I had no idea that I was going to actually see and meet them and get to know what they're, uh, get an update of what they're doing. Uh, and so I met two individuals. One was actually my roommate in the hotel in Pyongyang. Uh, and so 12 years later, we reconnected. And so it was kind of a, a bizarre experience for me. Uh, but uh, as we're meeting with one of my ex-team members, uh, she showed the 2007 uh, mission video to our team. And uh, to be honest, I cringed so bad at, um, at what I looked like 12 years ago. Um, but not only that, my team collect- collectively gasped as they saw me, my you know, 24-year-old self, and a lot of them actually laughed. Uh, and it hurt me that they were laughing so much. Um, and, and one actually pointed out, like, my eyebrows, like, for some reason, ex- extra bushy. Like back then, and she, you know, she asked me, I'm not going to say your name. She asked me, um, do you pluck your eyebrows? And I'm like, no, I don't pluck my eyebrows. My face just grew into my eyebrows. Um, but another team member's like, oh, my gosh, why did Jane say yes to that? How could she say yes to that? Um, and I don't blame him. I don't blame him for saying that because I was literally 40 pounds lighter and, um, you know, because I, I, I came back from actually a previous mission trip, so I lost a bunch of weight, uh, but I look so different uh, in 2007 and now. And so when people kind of talk about me and, and how they explain me is they split my life this way, uh, before Jane and after Jane, right? So you have the before Jane DC and you have the after Jane DC because after I married Jane, a lot of things changed in my life. Uh, one of those things being just kind of fashion, my hair, uh, the way that I groom myself. It's different, but also my character changed a lot, you know, being a husband for the first time. Right? Significant relationships and experiences shape and form who we are. Right? We, 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 we all are shaped and formed by different people or different experiences. So for a lot of us, that's marriage. Uh, marriage changes who we are. Uh, maybe you're a first-time parent, and that changes who you are. It might be a mentor relationship, a a close friend, or it might be an experience like getting your first job or a mission trip that changes and transforms us. You know, for the past few weeks, we've been looking at the life of Moses. Our focus has been on him. Um, And in our passage, we're going to see a turning point in Moses's life. And now Moses' life is just crazy. So we're going to continue the roller coaster of Moses' life. But he was born at a time where the king of Egypt said, we have to kill off all the sons, right, the Hebrew boys that are born. And so he, he, he made this command that they are all to be thrown in the Nile River. Moses' parents decides to, to hide him for three months until he, they couldn't hide him any longer. 
And his mother ended up putting him in a basket and laid him among the reeds in the river. And what happened was Pharaoh's daughter found him. And so he was raised in the palace. He was raised in royalty, different from his brothers and sisters that were enslaved. But as he grew as a man, at the age of 40, he saw one of his Hebrew brothers being beaten by his slave master. And what does he decide to do? He goes to defend him. He strikes the slave master and he murders him. Now he's a fugitive. He runs away from his comfort. He runs away from his palace and he finds himself in Midian. And he meets Jethro, a Midian, a Midian priest. And he gives him a daughter to marry, Zipporah. And now we see him as a stand-in shepherd. Right? He's watching after the sheep of Jethro, his father-in-law. And not to mention, nothing has changed as far as slavery goes for his people. They are still enslaved. But what we get in last week's passage at the end of chapter 2 is a shift in the narrative. Not only are we going to see a shift in Moses' life, we're going to see a shift in the history of Israel. We're told that God hears the cries of his people. Now, from the cries, God remembers his covenant with his people. And that is where we're going to pick, uh, pick up. Exodus chapter 3, verses 1 through 15. Let's give our full attention to the reading of God's word. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I'll turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near, take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I've heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I've come, come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me and I've also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I've sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. This is God's word. Amen. 
This is the story of Moses' conversion, in essence, right? God met Moses for the first time, and Moses experienced being in God's presence for the first time. It was on Mount Horeb where Moses' journey from being a stand-in shepherd turns to be the deliverer of Israel, right? This is the turning point from being a stand-in shepherd to becoming the deliverer of Israel, And this mountain, Mount Horeb, is an important mountain, not only for the book of Exodus, but we're going to see actually throughout Scripture. Because it is on this mountain that God reveals himself constantly over and over again to his people. This is the mountain of revelation. Revelation. And what we have in this passage is an opportunity to learn more about our God, Yahweh. Who is he? What is he like? What is his character? What is his nature? And so we have this rich theological encounter, right, to study. And so I'm so excited to to get into this with you guys. There's two questions I want to ask and answer. What has God revealed about himself to Moses? And what is God wanting to reveal about himself to us today? And the second is, how then should we respond to this revelation? So what is the revelation and how should we respond? So first, what has God revealed? The first thing that we learn about God in this meeting is that God approaches the unapproachable. Verse two, and the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. Such an interesting way to reveal himself, isn't it? Fire seems like the medium of choice in which God reveals himself to his people. The the, the time that uh, uh, Abraham actually encounters God, when when he's going to stamp, right, and, and, and mark his covenant with Abraham, how does God show up? He shows up as a fiery cauldron, a pot with fire in it. And what he does, he, he passes through the animals that were sacrificed in half, cut in half, saying that I will stay true to my covenant that I make with you. I'm going to bless you so that you're going to be a blessing. He shows up in a fiery pot. Here, God shows up in a flaming bush. Right? Here in Sunland, we're all too familiar with fires, unfortunately. Right? Two years ago, the hills outside were, were, were on flames, right? And afterwards, it's charred. It, everything is burned. And for weeks on end, this place smelled. It, it was like a campfire, right? But here we see a bush on fire, but it is not being consumed. Now, if I walked out and, and the hills were on fire, but nothing was burning, I would freak out. I would say, God is here, right? And I'll, I'll be in a panic. And that's exactly what happens with Moses, But to make it clear that it was actually God, we are told that the angel of the Lord came up out of the flames. Now, this phrase, angel of the Lord, is very important. We're going to see it again and again in the Old Testament. Now, we can't misunderstand this. This is not an angel representing God. This is angel of Yahweh. This is God fully present with Moses at this time through this angel. We see the same angel of the Lord with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace, protecting them. Some say that this was a pre-incarnate Jesus. Now, we can't know for sure, 
But, but, but what's clear here is that God is showing up. He is fully present with Moses at this time. Now, the question is, why with fire? Why an angel? All right? Both these are symbolic of God's holiness. God's holiness. Now, what does it mean to be holy? Very simple. A simple definition of holiness is separateness. God is unique. He is distinct. He stands apart from created things. He's altogether wholly different in character and nature. Right? When we watch new shows, we always have something to compare it with. When we try new foods, we have things to compare it with. Right? So when we watch a new show, we're like, oh, yeah, it's like, it's like The Office. Or it's kind of like a combination of, of The Walking Dead and Game of Thrones. We can say those things, right? When we try different foods, we say, oh, it's like In-N-Out. Or it tastes like chicken, like everything tastes like chicken, right? But with God, we don't have that ability because there's nothing that can compare to God's holiness. God is pure, perfect and pure in every way. His justice is holy. His love is holy. His grace and mercy is holy. Even his wrath is a holy wrath. We can't compare him to anything. And so if this is true, right, that God is this holy, then unholy creatures like you and me, we have no hope of approaching God. Rather, God has to approach us. He has to make the first move. But he does it in a way where he veils himself, right? Because if we're going to experience God, right, we can't experience the raw holiness of God because it would consume us. It would destroy us. Sinful human beings cannot stand in the holiness, the raw holiness of God. So what God does then is he veils himself through fire, right? Through an angel so that we can experience his presence. But even then, God has to give permission for Moses to draw closer, to approach. Verse four, when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, 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 and he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. Don't come any closer. What's amazing here is God makes the first move. God is the one who actually drew Moses to himself through the burning bush. God is the one who calls out to Moses first by name. And he invites Moses to approach him. This is the amazing grace of God. But before taking a step closer, Moses is told to take off his sandals, which was a, a sign of respect and reverence in this culture. You can't just come as you are. You got to take off your sandals. God is holy. He is unapproachable. But by his grace, he approaches Moses first and he approaches us first. We have no hope. As sinners, we have no hope to approaching God. We have to do some serious religious maneuvering in order to think that I can approach God. What do I mean by religious maneuvering? I mean, either we have to exaggerate our holiness, thinking we are better than we actually are, or we have to dilute God's holiness to think that I can approach him. 
And we do this all the time. Right? We do it all the time. We exaggerate our goodness. That's self-delusion. Right? And, and we dilute God's holiness. This culture dilutes God's holiness all the time. What is that called? That's called heresy. It is a false God. And we do it all the time, right? When we have a good week, right? We did extra good this week. Oh, it's a good Sunday. It's a good Sunday to go to church, right? I've been a good boy. I've been a good girl. So you know what? I'm fit to be in God's presence. Or we buy into the culture's fabrication of God, that he is tolerant, that he accepts anything and anyone, Right? So we accept that. And so what, what happens then when we accept that God? We presume that God would want us. We're being presumptuous. Neither our relative goodness or a caricature of God can get us into God's presence. Because God is perfect in holiness. He is perfectly pure. So then what would be his requirement for us to be in his presence? Perfection. Perfection. That is why we have no hope to approach him. That is why God, out of love, he approaches us first. And that is what he does with Moses. He approaches the unapproachable. The second truth that is revealed about God regarding himself is that he doesn't change. He doesn't change. Verse 6, and he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. And so God repeats this actually again and again in this chapter, in the next chapter, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. What is God doing here? God is reminding Moses of his unchanging faithfulness to his predecessors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now the journey that God took them on, the life that they lived, just really quick recap. Abraham left everything by faith when God told him to leave. When God said, I'm gonna bless you so that you're gonna be a blessing. Do you know how long he waited before he saw the fulfillment of that promise? He waited 25 years before he got his son, Isaac, at the age of 100, but yet God followed through. Isaac was nearly sacrificed by his father. What happened then? God provided, faithfully provided, remembering his covenant. He, he, he provided a thorn. I mean, he provided a ram uh, stuck in the thorns, right? Making provision to continue this promise. Isaac, Isaac was, was uh, uh, God was faithful to Isaac at that time. Jacob, the liar, the deceiver, held on to God's promise. He wrestled with God. He was crippled by God. But yet God blessed him. So with all the variety of trials and obstacles of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, right, what they share in common is God's undying faithfulness in keeping his covenant with them. God, unlike us, isn't subject, subjected to change. He stays the same yesterday, today, and forever, and he keeps his promises. He keeps his word. He will not disappoint And it was God's own covenant that moved him, right, to rescue his people from slavery. And so what God is telling Moses right here at this time, he's saying, as I was with them, I am too with you now. I will not fail you. Look at the past. Look at history. 
I have been faithful and I'll be faithful to you. The third revelation that we see in this encounter is that God redeems for his glory. Redemption is for God's glory. Verse seven, then the Lord said, I have surely seen the afflictions, affliction of my people who are in Egypt and I've heard their cry because of the taskmasters. I know their sufferings and I've come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. See, redemption is twofold. It's two-part redemption. He redeems Israel from slavery out of Egypt to a land, a broad land flowing with milk and honey. Redemption is twofold. Verse 12, he says, but I will be with you and this shall be the sign for you that I've sent you when you have brought the people out of Egypt. You shall serve God on this mountain. See, the ultimate goal of redemption is worship. Worship. The ultimate goal of redemption is a worship of God, knowing him, serving him, enjoying him. See, redemption doesn't find its ultimate fulfillment in my freedom, my autonomy, and my liberty. No, actually, right? God redeems us to experience fellowship and communion with him. See, the rightful place of God's people is with God, not with themselves, not to develop their own culture and their own society. No, they were meant for communion with God. And so redemption is twofold, saving from a life of slavery to saving to a life of worship dedicated to God. God takes us from slavery and brings us into a relationship, a fellowship with him. And God says God alone will accomplish redemption. But the amazing thing is he wants to use Moses to accomplish that as well. He wants to use a servant. And you would think after this amazing encounter with this burning bush and the angel of the Lord coming out of the flames and hearing about how this God of Abraham, Jacob, and Isaac and Jacob is the same God that's going to be with him, right? He's unchanging. Learning all these things about God that Moses will be ready. Let's go. I got this because I have you. You would think and imagine that that's where Moses would be, but that's not what we see. He actually wants more from God. He needs something else. Verse 11, but Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say to, this, to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. And now for the first time, God has revealed his name to Moses. And this leads us to the fourth revelation, which is simply God is. That's it. That's the revelation that God gave to Moses. God is. See, if Moses was going to go, go back to Egypt, he needed something more than himself, especially because the people knew and probably would recognize him. He needed to go with something more. And that is why he asked God for his name. 
just in case that the people might misunderstand him for representing a, a, a different God. So God, give me a name to give to them that they would know that you are their God. And so God replies, I am who I am. Which means God just is. Another way to say it is he alone is himself. God is speaking here of his self-existence, his self-sufficiency, that he is not dependent on anything or anyone. And the burning bush is is an example of his self-sufficiency because what is putting this bush aflame? What is causing the fire? It is God himself. He's providing the vitality and the fuel for the flame. But not only that, he suspends the very nature of fire where the bush is not consumed. God is saying, I am above and beyond. I'm outside of time and space. I can violate every rule of nature. This is the God, right, that we worship and that Moses is going to follow. Self-existing, eternal. He stands outside of creation. He is not confined to the things that we are confined to. And Moses is right in asking, who am I? And God replies, it's not about you. That is a good, good question. He says, but I am. I am sufficient. I'm all-powerful. I'm eternal. I created everything, and I'll see redemption through. Yes, Moses, you're limited. You're not enough. But God says, I am. See, Moses was struck with feelings of inadequacy and fear. And he asked, who am I to deliver Israel? And God, in essence, says says back to him, it's not who you are. It's who I am. And this brings us to the final revelation. Right? God is transcendent. He's self-existing, self-sufficient. He is so high and lofty and, and so high up there. But what does God do in order to save his people? The transcendent one condescends. He condescends to save his people. God stoops down. He gives himself, he gives Moses the very thing that he needs in order to fulfill the mission. It is his very presence. He comes down to us. Verse 8 mentions, I have come down to deliver. Verse 12, I will be with you. God is not only transcendent, he's imminent. He involves himself in the mess of our lives to redeem us and to rescue us. This is the God that we worship. Whether we acknowledge him or not, brothers and sisters, God is here right now through the power of the Holy Spirit. He is with you. See, Christianity is is the only religion Only religion that says you don't have to ascend to God because God condescended to you. That's the gospel message. You don't have to go up because he came down. Such an amazing revelation that we receive from God. And it is on this mountain where where Moses will begin to understand that the greatest gift that he can ever receive is God himself. Not the promised land because Moses actually doesn't get to go in. 
but he gets God. And he realizes, and, and his entire journey now is going to be fully realizing that this is the greatest gift. This is the, bless, this is the blessing. The ultimate blessing is to get God himself. Right? This is such an amazing encounter that Moses has with God. It's such amazing revelation that we're learning. But if we take a closer look at this encounter, what we have here is just a foreshadow, a preview of, of an even more greater revelation that we have in the Gospels, is it not? See, as God's presence was made known to Moses through a burning bush and angel, God's ultimate presence was made known through Jesus Christ. God became flesh. God's glory was veiled in human flesh in a form that you and I, we can understand, we can comprehend, we can talk to, we can converse to, that we can experience relationship with. Such a profound way to reveal himself through a man. God became man. And as God stooped down and he came down to redeem Israel from physical slavery, in the incarnation, Jesus, God's son, condescended from his throne, emptied himself and took the form of a slave, dying on that cross to redeem us and to purchase us from sin. God himself, as he reveals that he is the great I am. You know what Jesus says in John chapter 8? Before Abraham was, I am. I am. Jesus is God here in this passage. That's what he's revealing. And he, he's the one who's going to deliver us. Jesus is the better Moses who's going to lead, lead, lead us out of a greater exodus. See, Moses was reluctant as a messenger of God. He kept trying to find excuses not to go. What do we see in Jesus Christ? He willingly came down. He boldly went to the cross. To not, not only to free us from physical slavery, but to defeat our greatest enemy, which was sin, Satan, and death. And just as God commissions, commissioned Moses to be his representative, Jesus Christ too commissions us in the Great Commission. Go and make disciples of all nations. And the same promise that God made to Moses, Jesus makes to us, I will be with you to the end of the age. In the Gospels, we have a greater encounter with God. We have a greater revelation. So to close, then how are we to respond to this revelation? What are we going to do with this information? First thing is this. I want us to respond by approaching him in humility. Just as Moses couldn't stand on holy ground without taking off his shoes, we too cannot enter into his presence without repentance. Jesus came, repent. He's saying, repent and believe. We gotta repent. Repentance is simply turning from your life of sin and placing your trust in Jesus Christ that he died for your sins. That's it. And I know there are brothers and sisters here that have not made that decision yet. I wanna share with you, God made the first move to you. The ball's in your court. He initiated with us. He sent us Jesus Christ. What he's asking us is to repent and believe. Would you consider believing in him? Would you consider your life and how you fall short of his glory? Look to Jesus Christ. He is your perfect redeemer. 
And so all you need to do is confess that you're a sinner and that Jesus Christ is your Savior. If you make that profession and, and if you make that decision, please come and talk to me or any other pastors here. We'll love to pray with you. So the first response to this amazing revelation is to approach God in humility. Second, second response is patiently trust in him. When Moses murdered this Egyptian slave master, do you know how old he was? He was 40. Do you know how old he was when he went back to Egypt to deliver the people out of slavery? He was 80. Do the math. 40 years living in the wilderness, watching after someone else's sheep, not even his own sheep. Like in anyone's, anyone's world, right? We, we look at Moses and we're like, that's a demotion, that's a failure. What is he doing for 40 years? Can you imagine waking up every day dealing with these dumb animals day in and day out for 40 years? Routine, ordinary tasks? That's like a nightmare for millennials, right? But unbeknownst to Moses, God was doing something in those 40 years. He was training and disciplining Moses for a greater task that he had in mind. He was gonna literally heard millions of Hebrews, like Hebrew men and women and children out of Egypt. These dumb, complaining, ignorant people, he's gonna have to deal with them for 40 years in the wilderness. This is not by accident. God's not wasting his time. This is not a waste of Moses' time. God was doing something in the wilderness and in wandering. Now, brothers and sisters, I know that there are people here like, just frustrated. You're tired of just being in this middle place, right? Like, by this time, God, I thought I'll be married. By this time, God, I thought my career would, would just launch off. By this time, I thought I would have children or even have a boyfriend or girlfriend. By this time, I thought I would get into that graduate program. What am I doing here? And you're frustrated. You don't know if God is doing anything. The promise of God is God is doing something. He's unchanging, he, he, he's going to stay true, true to his promises. He's with you. And so we're called to respond to this amazing revelation by patiently trusting in him. He's interested more in your character, not your calling. He wants to build you up. He wants you to know that he is the, blessed, the, the best thing that we can ever have. And so patiently trust in him. You are in his sovereign hands. He does not make mistakes. He does not waste time. And he is always working in your life. Lastly, how do we respond to this amazing revelation? Focus on his presence and not your purpose. Focus on his presence and not your focus greatest blessing for Moses was to get God. I will be with you. But Moses is caught up in himself. We're going to see again and again. You're going to see next week. But God, I don't have the credentials. I can't speak well. What about this? What about that? He's caught up in the purpose and the mission, failing to realize that he has God's presence. Yeah, you can't do it. Yeah, you're not enough. But God is with you. See, as millennials, we're, we're, we're so, we're banking on having a purpose and being significant. That is what we want. 
But God wants us to know that we have the best thing, and that is himself. What good is purpose and significance? What good is it if we don't have God's presence? Think about it. What good is it if you're changing lives, if you're doing all these amazing things, but if you don't have God? That is what we were designed for, is to be with him. Focus on his presence and not purpose. See, we have a mission as well. We have a mission. That is a great commission. That is what all of us are called to do. And the truth of the matter is, I'm not enough. I don't have what it takes. And God wants to remind you and me today, you're right, but you have me. And that's enough. Friends, I want to encourage us, pursue his presence. Don't, don't, don't pursue what you think he can give you. Pursue him for him. Read the word, pray, go to calm groups, but do it for him, to know him better, to enjoy him, to know that he delights over you and that you can delight in him. Friends, we, are, we can glorify God by being satisfied. We can most glorify him by being satisfied in him. The greatest blessing the gospel offers to you and me today is himself. We get him as our father, and we are his children. And this is amazing news. By faith, we have him every single day of our lives, every breathing moment through the abiding presence of the Holy Spirit. We are told that God lives in us. So respond. Respond. Ask God, God, meet with me now. God, meet with me. I need you. I'm nothing without you. I want you guys to pray that prayer and ask him to come now through the Holy Spirit. Let's pray together. God, I, God, I confess that I'm, I focus on myself too much. God, I want my life to mean something. I want to I wanna do something to prove something. Um, and I forget, Lord, that I have you, the greatest gift of all. Thank you so much for coming down, for stooping, for condescending and approaching us who are unapproachable. Thank you, God, that you are unchanging, God, that you don't change and you don't change your mind. You stay true to your promises. God, I thank you that you are in the business of redeeming broken lives, those that are enslaved, and you free us for yourself. Thank you that you are not subject to, to the laws of this world, but that you stand above them. At the same time, you are ever-present with us. You are a good God. Thank you so much for revealing yourself and not leaving us in the dark to figure out who you are, but you showed yourself in the fullest way through your son, Jesus Christ. In his life, death, and resurrection, now we get to be in your presence. We can shout out to you saying, Father, Abba, Father, and we can enjoy intimacy with you. God, I pray that you'll bring faith here now for my brothers and sisters that have not yet trusted in you. Help us, Lord, to trust in you. And for those of us who are wandering, who are frustrated and waiting, God, remind us of your faithfulness. And Lord, 
Help us to know that you're, you're enough for us. That you're enough. And that we want you. That is our prayer today. We want you and nothing else. Come now. Holy Spirit, come now and move. We give you all the praise and glories. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.